taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we're so thankful that you joined us uh, tonight for our continued series on Christology. And tonight, we are opening passage of Scripture. comes from Mark chapter 16, verse 19, which says, So the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Man, it's funny. You know, we're 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 a couple of uh, '70s and '80s kids, and we're having a bunch of fun here, finding all old theme songs to all of our old shows we used to watch. And that one was Night Riders, so that's uh, that, that's some fun stuff there. We'll have to find an Airwolf song. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to find the one without the words to it, but uh, I had a hard time doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just got to do what we got to do, and just kind of bring a little fun into the whole thing. So. Absolutely, yeah. So, welcome aboard, folks. Uh, we've been uh, we've been praying for you. We've been uh, just uh, we've been blessed as as a as a ministry. We are getting and we got another contributor. We've been getting more and more. Um, just some more and more things that God has opened up, um, our ears, our hearts and our, and our actions to of what we're doing. I mean, um, we've got, uh, we're writing articles like crazy that are going to be coming here pretty soon that are just coming from all sorts of different varieties of, of, uh, I guess you could say different academics, uh, different different types of academics that are all part of the Bellator Christi. You want to go ahead and announce the new uh, the new contributor? Yeah, we we uh, are, are proud to announce that uh, Dr. Scott Reynolds has joined us. In fact, he, he had actually agreed to join Bellator Christi a few months back. Uh, but uh, I take responsibility. I was, I was supposed to email him the materials to get started, and unfortunately, due to uh, <laughs> A lot of things coming in at one time. I failed to do so. I thought I had, but I, apparently I didn't. But anyhow, thankfully, we, we got everything resolved now, and uh, he is with us. Uh, Dr. Reynolds is a very fascinating guy. He um, he has um, he received a doctor of ministry from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he's gone to Troy University. He lives down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, he served as a church planter uh, down there, started up a, a church that's done, done really well in the Tuscaloosa area, uh, impacted several lives down there. Um, he's worked with the state convention in Alabama uh, d- d- with, with church planting. Uh, he knows, my understanding is he knows Tom Rainer really well, uh, the uh, guy who used to be the CEO of uh, Lifeway. Uh, but one of the most fascinating things about uh, Dr. Reynolds, in addition to his love for soccer, now Scott loves some soccer now, uh, he's all about some soccer, but one of the most interesting things about him, I, I think, uh, not only is he, is he a, a wonderful man of God, but he uh, he has been overseas, he's really traveled across the world and has uh, taken part in several archaeological digs in and around Jerusalem and in Israel. Uh, he, my understanding is, is he's gone to parts of Israel that the general public are, are not allowed to, to visit uh, because of working in archaeology. And he's been with uh, some of the top names in archaeology. Uh, can't think of the guy's name, but there's a professor down at UNC Charlotte. Uh, he's he's gone on archaeological digs with him. That guy has been uh, on several History Channel episodes and things of that nature. The guy he's with, again, his name eludes me at the moment. 
but uh, it's a joy and privilege. He, he's been a he's been a fan of Bellator Christie for a long time, and it is it's gl- glad to finally get him on board uh, with the That's Bellator awesome. Christie podcast. So we or BellatorChristie dot in the ministries there. So uh, we definitely want to welcome t- uh, Doctor Scott Reynolds uh, with us on the Bellator Christie team. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun to get him on the podcast and talk about some some uh, archaeology and just Absolutely. that that stuff is just uh, that just that stuff just. It just it, it makes me so curious and so just excited because you know you're digging up not only just <laughs> you're digging up stuff uh, for historical facts you know but you're also digging up biblical truth absolutely and it, that that's what makes me so excited is to is to just know that you know the things we read in the scriptures that it can is is supported by by these facts and I, I wanted to point that out and, and it very well may be part of my article that i that i'm thinking about writing and, and trying to put put things together for it but the just the simple fact that in this culture today we're willing to accept you know <laughs> um stories and accounts and things like that in in uh in you could say just in normal um, reading and and in normal historical books that are you know five six seven eight hundred years between the between the writing and the support of when it actually happened and stuff and yet we get closer and closer to biblical dating we're seeing it closer and closer and closer to the actual events and the amount of material we have to support biblical truth is far surpassed anything that's out there that other people hold to as a, a true event or or whatever you know things like it, it's it it truly blows my mind the embarrassment of riches that we have of of for supporting the Bible, yeah, and, and far more out there than than what we even realize. Um, now, one thing I will say, um, Doctor Price had. In fact, I was in class with uh, Scott Reynolds with Doctor uh, Randall Price, and he, he he mentioned when it comes to archaeology uh, that um, that that the archaeological evidence cannot prove or disprove biblical events but it can give more credence to or less credence to the probability that they that they've occurred so if you sure. find um if, if you find for instance the walls of jericho if, if you find the walls have collapsed at a certain time uh in the way the bible presents that they did and if you have pottery that matches the time frame which by the way pottery is a big deal when it comes to uh, archaeology mm. because that can help date things really well uh but uh you know documents and if you especially if you have uh, pottery um and things of that nature that, that can help you date to certain areas uh, again it, it doesn't prove that it happened per se um because you know you, you can't prove that god came down and did this except for like now the resurrection of jesus i think that's one of the most important historical events because I think that you can make a claim that God did that. I think with creationism, you can make that claim as well. But uh, but as far as the probability of these events taking place, they they are either built up or, or lessened by by the archaeology. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah. as you said, it's a very important, very important field yeah. study. I mean, what is it? Um, the the pool of Siloam that everybody for a long time was saying that there was no such thing as the pool of Siloam and yada 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 and then all of a sudden whoop there it is somebody yeah. dug up the pool of Siloam and, and one one of the biggest things about that is that uh, one of the in the eighteen hundreds people were saying well there couldn't be such a pool because we've never seen a a, a Roman pool with five porticos. Porticos, yeah. and then and then lo and behold, they find they find it, and guess how many porticos it has? Exactly what John said: five porticos. So, yeah, th- th- those are things mm. that really confirm and give credence to the story. Yeah, amazing stuff. So, folks, we're uh, we're in our Christology series. Uh, it's episode fifteen, Christology, uh, part three, and so we're going to kind of focus in on the early Christological titles. Uh, of of Jesus and and I these are the things that um, 
I think really set some groundwork of of how we engage the scriptures, um, understanding what these what these mean, but also helping us see what Jesus was doing when he was on the on this earth. Absolutely, and it also helps us to understand how people view Jesus. Uh, yeah. it, it, on the one, I mean, because some of these titles we're going to talk about, I mean, it was really fascinating to me as I was looking up the usage of these titles that some of these titles Jesus hardly, ever, rarely, if ever, used them of himself. Some of these titles, but other people used these titles for him, and um, mm. and and there, there's one title that by far exceeds the usage of any other title. And you're gonna to have to wait and listen to our podcast to find out which one that is. So, so stay tuned, folks. Buckle up. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be an interesting ride tonight. Good one. Yeah. So, uh, let's let's just roll into this. And what do we mean by early Christological titles? So we, we kind of we've kind of halfway answered that already. So th- these early Christological titles are titles that Jesus either used of himself, or titles that other people used for him. And so, mm-hmm. uh, some of these titles uh, are, are found in early creedal material, and so we can date some of these titles to very early in the in to a very early usage in the church history, uh, especially if they're found in creeds and, and the like. And and there's one title that it's, it's going to be one that you're not going to think is going to be important, but it it's really holds a tremendous value. Uh, speaking of how the the church saw Jesus, viewed Jesus from from the very outset, uh, so that's that's one of the things we're talking about. So, but some of these tells us tell us what how Jesus viewed himself, and some of these tell us how the earliest Christians viewed Jesus. So it really gives us insight into the the belief systems uh, from the earliest Christians of Christology found in and of through Jesus, and especially the interpretations found in the earliest church. So th- this holds tremendous, not only theological value, but it also ha- holds apologetic value for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to start out, we're going to swing for the fences on this one right off the bat. What does the title Son of God mean? Okay, so the so the title Son of God, this is, this is a title that's, that's uh, it's actually used in the Old Testament a, a few times. Mm-hmm. Um but here's the interesting thing I found as I was as I was looking through the uh, references. Jesus rarely used this title for himself. Now in John's Gospel, we see that he implies it of himself on a few occasions. Yeah. But more times than not, this title is used of other people to describe the nature of Jesus. So, so uh, Curtis, I'm, we're going to do a, a kind of a sword drill here. Uh, we've got several scriptures we're going to look at, and these are just these are just these are just small verses. Um, so, first of all, we see Satan use this title for Jesus in Matthew four three. So, can you read that passage of scripture for us, Matthew four three? Yeah, and and the tempter came and said to him, "If you are the Son of God." command these stones to become loaves of bread. So here again, Jesus didn't use this title of himself, but even Satan recognized this title uh, or, or recognized this uh, this authority that Jesus had as Son of God. And so the, the name Son of God implies a, uh, a, a strong connection with divinity. It implies that, that there's a sonship between the Son and the Father in this, and especially the way it's used here. So let's take a look. At, even the demons use this title for Jesus in Matthew eight twenty nine. So how about read that one for us? Uh, it says, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? So there again, even the demons of hell recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there's also another practical application we need to find in this. Uh, just recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God is one thing, but having that relational aspect with Jesus, entering into that covenant is a whole other thing. The demons of hell, Satan himself recognized Jesus and right. his identity as being the Son of God, but they didn't trust in him. They didn't have that relational aspect with him, but they recognized this as an aspect of his nature. So it's used by Satan, it's used by the demons, uh, it's used by several apostles. Uh, Simon Peter used this title for Jesus in Matthew 16, 16. Uh, how, how about that one for us here, Curtis? Mm-hmm. 
says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The, the, the Son of the living God. He makes that connection uh, between uh, of the divine sonship of Jesus with, with the Heavenly Father. Uh, Matthew 14.33, this title is used by all the disciples there on the Sea of Galilee. Um, let's take a look at that one, Matthew 14.33. It says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So already we're seeing a pattern. It's used by Satan. It's used by the demons. It's used by Simon Peter, by the apostles. Mark, the evangelist, uses this title for, for Jesus in Mark 1.1, the very first book in, in Mark's gospel. Uh, how about that one for us? It says, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. He makes that connection uh, with with Christ's identity as being the Son of the Living God, and and here again with, with these references, we're not seeing Jesus laying claim to this. And that doesn't mean that he didn't believe that he held this position, because obviously when you when you read uh, the teachings of Jesus, he did. But he didn't come out and say, "Hey, I'm the Son of the Living God. Look at me." Uh, this is recognized by other people and other entities. So, so Nathaniel recognizes this of Jesus in yeah. John one forty nine. This is a fascinating story, where where Jesus lays claim to being able to see and hear the prayers of Nathaniel by a tree when he was not physically around Nathaniel. Hmm. Uh, huh. That's why Nathaniel says this thing in John one forty nine. How about that one for us? It says. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So, yeah, so he recognized what Jesus did is Jesus was able to hear his prayer while he was sitting under the tree that time, and so he knew that only someone who had a direct lineage and connection with God could do such a thing as that. And so let's yeah, take a look at the... It's kind of amazing because you, you think about that... <clears throat> Just that 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 scripture, that section of that story where where Jesus does say that, it gives a little insight to how much Jesus knew. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and we'll, we'll, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, I was going to go you, somewhere. You tempted me with that, Curtis. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave, leave that alone right now. That's for another podcast, another time. But. <laughs> but but Martha uses this title of Jesus. You know, her brother Lazarus had died. Uh, like any of us, they question why Jesus wasn't there. Why did why didn't he come through for for this their loved one? But she says something in John eleven twenty seven. Let's take a look at that. The other thing is though, when you read this, you you got to ask. Why wasn't everybody getting this? But yeah, <laughs> but she she said to him, "Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world." Yeah. Now, notice that she also uses another messianic title, Messiah or Christ. There, well, we're going to come back to that a little bit later on. But just just reference that, bookmark that in your mind right now. But yes, yeah, she made this connection. Now. When Jesus uses this, now it's interesting. From my search, now I may have missed something, and, and if and if you found if if you're listening to this and you find something in the Synoptic Gospels, being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus uses the title for himself, let me know. Uh, in my search, I didn't find anywhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus used the title for himself. And really, in John's Gospel, he only implicitly uses the ter the term for him in third person. I tell you what, we're not going to read all of these, but just, just for reference, John 3.18, John 5.25, and John 10.36. But how about John 3.18 for us? And actually, I tell you what, let's do two because there is there are some people who say that they don't think that belongs to Jesus. I believe it does. I believe uh, 3.16 through uh, 21 belongs to Jesus. But anyhow, in any event, let's go ahead and read 3.18 and 5.25. Okay, so 3.18 is is whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, let's take a look at uh, 525. And 525 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God 
and those who hear will live. Okay, so so there there again, um, it, it's he's not using this directly for for himself, but he's implying, uh, you know, his identity in that sense. So it, it's interesting, you know, th- this this is a, this is a title that many people, many beings used of Jesus, but very rarely. I don't think that I found, at least I haven't found anything where he directly uh, refers to himself with this title, but he implies it in third person in several different instances. So, uh, a very interesting aspect of this title, Son of God. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So then, why was Jesus called Rabbi? Now, Rabbi is very interesting. The Aramaic version, Rabboni, is also used of Jesus. But this this refers to a person who is a master of um, not only, I would say not only a master of the biblical text, but a master of even, some people would say, the oral traditions. Uh, this, this is a person who went through honestly that this this title is used for people who went through uh jewish schooling of the highest ranks now there were different levels of schools there were different kinds of schools in different areas um but this whole notion and i've been reading through berger gerhardson's book memory and manuscript and i think the scandinavian scholars make a very strong case that jesus was far more educated than what many scholars lay claim to um, and, and quite honestly, the, the more I'm researching, the more the more I'm finding that I think that's absolutely right. Um, yeah. Yes, the the, liter, the literacy levels in Greco-Roman worlds, the Greco-Roman world was was low, but that's not accounting for the fact that the Jewish people were people of the book, and um, right. at least for males, it would have been anticipated that the young boys would have grown up learning the Torah, learning the Scriptures, and even learning the um, the, the the Mishnah the uh, um, what was the 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 halakha of their of the of their teachers and um, and and learning these traditions so it stands to reason that uh, that Jesus was uh, was far more far more trained than what we would even realize uh, but he was recognized as a rabbi by several individuals he was uh, it was he was now here's an interesting thing Judas Iscariot while he was not a believer, used the title rabbi for Jesus in Mark fourteen forty five. Let's take a look at that. Hmm. Yeah, and when he came, when he came, he went up to him at once and said, "Rabbi," and then he kissed him. Oh, sealed it with a kiss. Uh, so, so he recognized Jesus as being uh, a, a, a highly trained, highly skilled teacher of the law. Uh, but yet he still turned them in, and uh, and th- there are many reasons I think that could be for that. Maybe Jesus did not fulfill the political aspirations that Judas Iscariot had for him. Also, something interesting uh, from from what I have gathered, and and if you're listening to this and, and you have evidence to the contrary, leave a comment to the podcast. But from from my research, it appears that Judas Iscariot was the only person trained in in Jerusalem. The rest of the disciples were were trained up in uh, in, in Galilee. Galilee. Yeah, uh, so that, I mean that doesn't say that the Jerusalem training was no good. I'm not saying that, but it is an interesting uh, perspective to pick up that that maybe maybe because of the um, the, the, the uh, political aspirations, you know, the and maybe those political movements were even stronger around the city as one might expect they would be. Uh, maybe, maybe this this helps us understand. Um, could he have even been planted as a spy? I mean, I, we don't know. I mean, Jesus actually chose him to be a disciple, so you know, Jesus knew what he was about when he first chose him. But 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 nonetheless, it, it, there are some interesting things to draw out from from the location of the disciples, and so. But that goes beyond what we're what we're talking about today. But it well, was, the the other thing, the other thing though, to just add to that is. And I can't remember which which area thought lesser, but one area thought lesser of the other area, um, whether it be the training of Galilee or the training of uh, in Jerusalem. One one thought yeah. one thought one was lesser than the other. Yeah, and the Jerusalem school thought the Galilean school was lesser, but actually, from from some of the evidence that that has has surfaced from what I found. In some of the books reading for the dissertation, the Galilean schools were actually superior in some ways 
at least in their training style of the scriptures. Now, maybe not so much in the oral tradition, but at least in the training of the scriptures, they seem to be mm-hmm. better. But uh, yeah, that's why you see that in the book of Acts, uh, the the, uh, the the leader, Jewish leaders of the time, said that uh, that Peter and John were were uneducated or untrained. Or unlearned right. men, I think is the way it was word, uh, worded. It didn't mean that they were illiterate, but it meant... Right, it doesn't that, mean they were dumb. They just they, weren't trained in the area. They weren't trained in the same schools that they were in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like today. You know, I went to Liberty University, which I Yale, love Liberty Yale University. Yale and Harvard. Yeah, if you have someone from Yale and Harvard, they're going to look, you know, say, so pish posh on you, you didn't come from Yale, you didn't come from Princeton or Harvard, (laughs) or something like that. So, I mean, it's the same type of stuff, it's the same type of deal. Uh, You know, some people would look at me because I went to conservative schools as being just a redneck killbilly scholar or something like that. That's the way, there's there's some people out there with that notion that if you didn't go to their school, then you're no good. The same thing happened there. It didn't mean that John and Peter were 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 not intelligent and were not trained. It just meant that they didn't go to their particular chosen school, mm-hmm. and so that's something to to remember there as well. So Peter uses this Mark eleven twenty one of Jesus. Let's take a look at that. Yeah, and this one says, uh, "And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, <laughs> the fig tree that you cursed has withered." <laughs> So I tell He's you, like, whoa! Check that out. <laughs> We're not going to go ahead and read this, but uh, Nathaniel uses this in John one forty nine as well of concerning Jesus. The mm-hmm. disciples used it in John four thirty one. Let's do take a look at John uh, twenty verse sixteen and use and and see how Mary Magdalene uses the term um, in that time of her life. John twenty, yeah, verse sixteen. Verse sixteen, and this this is happening happened after my if memory serves, this is after the resurrection. So this is a mm-hmm. a, a post resurrection event or a or a risen appearance of Jesus. Yeah, and Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So that's the Aramaic version of, of the term rabbi. So the blind man uses it in Mark ten fifty one of Jesus. So here again, Jesus, Jesus did not use this term, this title for himself. Here again is another instance of this. He didn't use this title for himself, but other people did. Other people recognized right. his, his authority and his ability to teach. And, you know... That this speaks a lot of the humility of Jesus. Even though Jesus knew he was the Son of God, just as the Philippians hymn said, he didn't he didn't account this as something to brag about or boast about. Uh, even though Jesus held the title of of rabbi, a teacher, uh, he didn't boast about it. And he said, in fact, he even told his disciples, "Don't go around proclaiming to be a rabbi." You know, he said in one of his teachings. Um, it wasn't that he dismissed education or it dismissed schooling, but he was. Don't elevate yourself to this high status, and so we see really the humility of Jesus through his um, his his lack of usage in these particular titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and uh, culturally, and even to this day, rabbis are looked at as the the highest of standards, the highest of opinions, the highest of of such, and there are those that that think highly of themselves because they're thought highly from others. Yeah, there there are some uh, oral traditions which were re- you know later uh, recorded in the in the Talmud. Uh, one 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 rabbinic tradition said that uh, that students should should treat their their rabbis as if they're another parent. You know, just like they would treat their parent, so they would they should take their rabbi on like a mother or, or, or like a father, I should say, because uh, rabbis mm-hmm. were male. They should take on their, their these rabbis as 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 one of their own, a family member even. Um, so that that shows that connection that they had between rabbi and student, mm-hmm. or rabbi and disciple. Kind of gives a little different, uh, little different view. Of when we read the scriptures about how Jesus um, actually picked his um, disciples. Absolutely. 
You, you know, I, I want to make a one a little quick point that I, I failed to mention back on the Son of God title. There's some other references I, I didn't bring out, but but we've talked about Satan used it, the demons used it, the apostles used it, the high priest even implied it in Matthew twenty six sixty three, asking, "Are you the Son of the Living God?" And Jesus said, "You say that I am." The accusers used that title for him in Matthew twenty seven forty. The centurion, in a moment of faith, used the title for him in Matthew twenty seven fifty four, and the angel. Mm-hmm. Uses the title for Jesus in Luke one thirty five. So there were a few additional uh, points there meet, meant to bring out, but uh, just to to bring that around as we continue through our um, investigation. Yeah. So, why did Jesus use the title Son of Man? Now, that, l- l- let me this say this is he, the one that he used. This is the one that Jesus most frequently used of himself. So, so here is the interesting thing about. This title, as I was looking at the different titles that Jesus used, he he hardly ever used the title Rabbi for himself. He only implicitly used the title Son of God for himself. However, he uses the title Son of Man, which in in Aramaic in uh, uh, Hebrew would be Ben Adam. Uh, in Aramaic is uh, Bar Enosh or uh, yeah yeah Bar Enosh. He uses the term. Son of Man, 78 times in the Gospels. Now, here's the interesting thing. In uh, Outside of the Gospels, this is really weird. This is really weird. Outside of the Gospels, the title Son of Man is only used four times. 78 times it's used by Jesus. Only four times it's used by the church outside the Gospels. One time was by Stephen when he's being stoned. Uh, he, he saw one like a son of man coming. There's there's another instance. There's two instances in the book of Revelation where it's t- it talks about the son of man. And there's a fourth uh, uh, instance in the book of Hebrews that talks about the son of man. But that's actually a quotation of a scripture in the uh, in in the Old Testament. So oh, Daniel, yeah, absolutely. So, but seventy eight times, Joachim Jeremiah adds in his book New Testament Theology. That, that the fact that Jesus used this title so much and the church rarely ever used it indicates that these sayings that Jesus, that, uh, these Son of Man sayings, are absolutely authentic statements from Jesus that can historically be connected to Jesus himself. And he says most likely, because if the title was, was, a, was, a new te- was a early church invention, they would have frequently used the title throughout the writings outside of the Gospels. But you only specifically, outside of those four occasions, really three, because one's a quotation, outside of those those instances, almost exclusively the title is used in the Gospels. And so this is this is something that Jesus uses for himself. He emphasizes uh, this, this title. Um, so we're going to look at a few instances, but let me first of all say this title comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's an apocalyptic imagery given there. And he says, he, he talks about these different nations. He talks about one that looks like a bear. It's actually a nation. Uh, it, one that looks like a leopard. One that looks like these different animals. And then he uses the term in Aramaic in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He sees one kabar enosh. K bar in us. The word K, that, that aspect of K there, uh, indicates this one like a son of man. He didn't say that he was a son of man. One like a son of man, meaning that he has the appearance, he's a heavenly being that has the appearance of a man. And this is absolutely fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating because um, this speaks of eschatological uh, of a time where where this representative of God was going to come and, and work on behalf of the people and and bring redemption to the people and bring victory to the people. This one like a son of man, and so let's take a look at a few of these statements. Um, let's take a look. At, well, I tell you what, because of time restraints, we'll, we'll look at a few of these. Let's take a look at John 3.14. Now, this is considered by, by all to be a statement of Jesus, uh, at least in, in, in most circles. So, John 3.14, let's take a look at that passage of Scripture. I'm, I'm going to back up 
just one verse, though, too, Brian, and sure. say, uh, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Yeah. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's using that eschatological understanding, uh, right. even that heavenly understanding of uh, of this Son of Man. Let's take a look at one more in John five twenty seven. John five twenty seven. Yeah. <laughs> and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he, because he is the Son of Man. That is a direct connection to Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen. Because in Daniel seven thirteen and 14, it says that the one like the Son of Man would be given an everlasting kingdom that, that would go on yeah. for eternity, an everlasting kingdom. In, 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 so anyhow, let's take a look at Luke eighteen thirty one. So if you look back, though, at that John, John 5, if you look back at 5, verse 25, 26, and 27, that is that is amazing how that's all tied together what Jesus did right there, because he's saying truly, truly I say to you, uh, you know, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the Son of God. And then it says, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority ex to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. <laughs> so you see, see the, the emphasis that Jesus was tying. Yeah, the emphasis is actually more on the Son of Man, bringing together that that understanding of Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen. Let's yeah. let's take a look at Luke eighteen thirty one. Eighteen thirty one, uh, and taking the twelve, he said to them, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem." And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, see, this is interesting because he not only notes the messianic kingdom that comes through the Son of Man in Daniel 7, but he also understands that this that this Son of Man is the very same one, this very same servant of the Lord that has been uh, spoken of throughout the pages of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, so he makes that connection. Let's take a look at, uh, we had two in Mark, but I, I'd rather let's take a look at Mark 14.62, because I think that's the more important of the two. Uh, both of them are important, but this is even more important. 14.62? Yeah. The sail the ocean blue? <laughs> I know, it's not it's not supposed to be, but <laughs> uh, let's see here. I'm just trying to burn up time so I can get there. And Jesus said, I, "I am, I am, and you will see the Son of Man." Okay, seated I, I, at I, the tell, right you, hand I tell you what. Let, let's back up one verse there uh, to, to okay, get the, yep. to get the impact. So sixty one, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, "Are you the Christ?" the Son of the Blessed. 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. All right, let's read that, the, the verse right after that. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? Okay, so you see Jesus makes this connection with the eschatological Son of Man. Some people have made the, the assumption that the viewpoint that the Son of Man referring to a heavenly Redeemer did not exist in the first century. But notice what the chief priests did when Jesus made the connection to that heavenly yeah. Son of Man. Yeah. He ripped his robes, and that is a, that is a sign of disdain. That's, that's a sign of, uh, of, of anger. Uh, righteous indignation that's going on with the high priest. He understood fully what Jesus meant by that because he understood the common understanding uh, of, of, of who that son of man, that Baranash in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 was, that it spoke okay, so of this heavenly Redeemer. Not only with that, but think of this. At that same time, the the high priest 
asking him about that statement, ripping his clothes at that point, he then is defiled and cannot go into the temple. Yeah. To be to do the work of the high priest. What was Jesus just preparing to do? <laughs> he was preparing to be the sacrificial lamb. Not only that, but also to be the high priest. And what happened to the curtain of the temple after Jesus was crucified? Yes, exactly. It was ripped wide open from top to from top exactly. to bottom. It wasn't from top bottom to, to bottom. top. This was a very That's thick God curtain. Done. It's a very thick curtain in, 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 as well. Yeah. And the fact that he yeah. ripped it from top to bottom showed that this was a supernatural act, not a human mm. human act. This was a supernatural act. There's a lot yeah. there, my friend. Oh my lot goodness! Lot <laughs> there. Wow. There we are. <laughs> Let, let's let's read one more. Let's take a look at. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter twenty-four. Uh, let's do Matthew chapter twenty-four, verse thirty, and then verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine. Folks, whenever you whenever you check out the podcast, whenever we publish this, I'm going to list all the. Uh, uh, or try to, if if time allows, uh, list all of these scripture references so you can go and see. We we don't quote all of these scripture references, uh, but we're going to try to have them ready for you so you can take it. Just kind of a little glimpse. These are not all the references that you're going to find, right. but but these are just a just a small sampling. Yeah, and you, and you can kind of go back and read a few verses before and after to get get the full picture. If you already understand the the theme of the story and the, and the storyline that's behind it. These things will impact you pretty heavily. Absolutely. Sure. So twenty four so, thirty and thirty seven through thirty nine. Okay, so uh, so then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power of great glory. Absolutely, a connection to Daniel seven. And, yeah. and, and this isn't even a connection to the resurrection. This is a connection to uh, the eschatological second coming. What's going to happen at the eschaton when he comes with the clouds of glory? He, he's going to he's going to be imbued with the, with the authority of the power on high from the ancient one that is God the Father, and is going to come to redeem his people. Uh, th- that is clearly a reference to. Um, to Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen, all of these are, but but Jesus uses, and a lot of time he uses this in third person of himself. But uh, he, this is his favorite title of all, and it's because yeah. it is enriched with that eschatological apocalyptic imagery mm-hmm. of that heavenly one at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Yeah, and just to kind of point this out, like we talked a little bit earlier about others calling him a rabbi this right here when he's teaching right here when he's speaking this he's teaching and speaking as a rabbi he's drawing drawing connections pictures types shadows all of those things together to to draw to draw the story and to to show that there's another connection and the fact that you see the disciples taking on Jesus's message and and repeating it um yeah, some, some people try to draw a distinction between the early church's understanding of Jesus and what Jesus said. Mm. But in the rabbinic tradition, the disciples would would basically be taking on the message of their rabbi and and passing it along, passing along the same the same information, the same message. They were to be ambassadors for their rabbi. And so in many ways, I think that the message you see the early church proclaiming is the message that Jesus presented. Um, now, it may be in a different words, it may be in, in a different you, you know um, terminology, or in some instances, but it's essentially the same concepts that he taught them. They're preserving the preserving the teachings and uh, passing them along to future generations. That's thoroughly Jewish rabbinic concepts going on there. Mm-hmm. So, verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, there you go, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept all away, 
So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Quick question for you, Curtis. Did uh, Jesus seem to imply that he believed that Noah was a historical person? Uh, yeah. And the flood actually happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. <laughs> there, there's verification. I say this all the time. There's always somebody in the New Testament that can verify the Old Testament. And it is always referring, as when I say that, we can use Jesus to verify what the Old Testament said. Amen. Because who better yeah. than Jesus would know what happened if he is truly <laughs> yeah. the person that yeah. that uh, he claims to be and the early church understood him to be and the resurrection verified yeah. him to be. Yeah. So, in, yeah. moving on. <laughs> as, as Frank Turek says, when somebody rises from the dead, I tend to understand and believe them. Yeah, I, you, you, that, that seems to have an impact. You know, that seems to have an impact. Oh, I love Frank Turek. He's hilarious. Hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, so so here we go. Let's get into this then. What is meant by the title word or logos? Oh boy. Yeah. We, we, we could take an entire podcast on this. I, I bring this up because there are good reasons, and we really don't have time to get into all the details, but there are really good reasons for believing that parts of John 1, 1 through 14 are are part of that early creedal material that's been preserved and passed along in the church. Now, some people would say, "Well, why don't we see more of, of evidence of the logos?" But but the the formatting of of John, the way John uses that in John mm-hmm. one, indicates that this was an early title used of Jesus. Um, and many people often use the logos or the word. Um, to reference Greek philosophy, and there was a Logos principle in Greek philosophy at that time. But Curtis, the amazing thing I found in some of my classes with Dr. Randall Price is he he uh, he introduced me to some material. Actually, in his own very personal library, he allowed me to read some of his books that speak of the rich Jewish tradition and understanding mm. Of the Lagos. Now, some of this, granted, mm-hmm. is more along the lines of Jewish mysticism, but some of this stuff even predates the New Testament. This understanding predates the first century. Uh, would have been understood in, um, so for instance, uh, um, what is it, the Book of Jubilees? This is part of the Pseudepigrapha. Uh, there are other other texts like that uh, that that has this notion of of this. Um, Ambassador of Yahweh, of Yahweh, it is Yahweh, but but this this personification some some form of Yahweh. Some individuals in in mystical um, um, literature in Jewish mysticism, they'll give this individual the the title of Metatron. Uh, it's it's it sounds like a uh, transformer mega megatron, but it's just <laughs> going to say man transformers. But, but but they look at this as being the angel of the Lord. Uh, some mm-hmm. I think in the book of Jubilees is listed as the angels of sanctification. They make it plural, but but some people believe they're talking about this angel of sanctification uh, who is who is really closely tied with Yahweh. Uh, making sanctification. Well, the under, understanding of this of this uh, this ambassador of Yahweh was that he was a revelator, that he was the enactor of covenants, that he was revealed wisdom, that he revealed himself to hum, himself to humanity, uh, that he was the signer of covenants, that he was a sanctifier, and that he was an advocate for the people of God. There's a lot there, and and yeah. in many ways, this this logos was seen as wisdom personified. And if you look at the end of uh, of the book of Proverbs, you'll see this this uh, this personification of wisdom. Often, it's cast as lady wisdom. You you have right. this uh, the, the the lady of the world and lady wisdom who who is like the word of God uh, personified. So this personification of wisdom was was who this is. But it was recognized to be part of God. It, you know, it, it was it was a it was part of of the divine Godhead. So when we look at the word as John uses this, 
which could very well be an early creedal uh, portion of Scripture, we see the usage of it in a very Jewish mindset. So, Curtis, let's take yeah. a look at the first... Uh, see, what do we want to do? Yeah. First, uh, let me pull it up here myself. Um, let's take a look at uh, John 1. Let's go ahead and read one, verses 1 through 5. Okay. And let's start there. Okay. Yeah. So it says here, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, not anything was made that was made. By the way, can, 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 him, I, can I pause? Right, yeah. Let's pause right there. Because also yeah, yeah. another aspect of this, of this, uh, of the understanding that Jews had of this logos was that he, he was the agent of creation. He was he was an aspect of Yahweh, but he was part of the agent of creation. And let's go back and read verse 3 again. Yeah, so verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Yeah, there. Yeah. The light shines in the darkness, and the light, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so you see this principle. In the beginning was the Word. Understanding this is wisdom personified, the revealer of the revealer, God's re- re- revelator, a signer of covenant, sanctifier, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. We see this imagery, but now we, we see this heavenly pre-existent being, but let's take a look at that with verse 14. So verse, so verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Powerful statement. Now, obviously, Jesus does not use this title of, for himself. But this is, this is an understanding that John, who I believe was an early eyewitness, I believe John the Apostle was the author of this. And even those who are skeptical about whether or not John the Apostle was the one who wrote it would still say, even if it's not John, this is an eyewitness of the events and teachings of Jesus' life. That They knew Jesus' theology, they knew his Christology, they knew his miracles. So, so I believe the evidence is, I think the verdict is in favor, but beyond a reasonable doubt, John the Apostle is the author of yeah. this book. Yeah. So with that being said... Uh, this is really powerful stuff, and this is the way that the earliest church would have understood Jesus. So yeah. l- we got to move on. <laughs> Run out of time, and that would and that would have been and that would have been uh, spoken through through that creedal type type atmosphere um, to to actually build that uh, oral tradition. Yeah. So so. Um, what is the term? Paracleo, I think it is, or or paralambano. Uh, the, the passing on of tradition, uh, and it takes this mnemonic, using these mnemonic devices, this rhythmic pattern, passed along from one generation to another, just like Amazing Grace. I dare say we could quote Amazing Grace off off the top of our heads because we we've, we've sung it so many times. We we've learned it. There's a rhythmic pattern to it. Likewise, sure. this has all the traits of being early material. Yeah, and that doesn't come from me. That comes from Gary Habermas and many others who, who research this. This. Uh, topic. I mean, let's let's even get simpler. I mean, we all can sing "Happy Birthday." Yeah, "Happy Birthday." So, yeah. so, so that would be a a, a very um, minimal oral tradition. Um, but that would be something that you could actually show as a basis. Everybody knows how to sing that song. And some people even add the high-pitched falsetto at the end of it. Oh, that's, yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> number six. <laughs> why, did the dis- why did the disciples call Jesus Lord? Well, let's actually back up. we got one more in between there, number six. That's what I said, number six. Oh, did we not put that? Oh, okay. Well, I'm backward on my end. Never mind. You're right. I'm wrong. Um... <laughs> When I was uh, looking at these, uh, 
I don't know what in the world I did there, but anyhow, I got that backwards. You're absolutely right. So uh, the Lord, the word Lord is perhaps one of the strongest links we have with Jesus being divine. Uh, the word curios, not not curious, but curios, is the word Greek word for Lord. Uh, it's used many times by people who are confessing that Jesus is Lord. Um, Jesus implicitly uses the term for himself when he calls himself the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord of Sabbaths. Yeah. Sabbath, um, yeah. But but he uses that word curios. Uh, many times, many of the confessions, we find the term uh, either Lord Jesus or Jesus is Lord. And I tell you what, Curtis, we've got several passages, but because time is eluding us, let's just simply look at Romans 10.9. This is verified to be an early creedal confession. This is early okay. material. And uh, I, I just, you know... I challenge people to go look up the many numerous times that the word that the title Lord Jesus is used in the in the New Testament. It's not used of Jesus of himself, even though he implicitly uses third person to talk of himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, or or um, in, in that sense. But let's take a look at the early confessional, and then I've got another major point I want to make about this, uh, as okay. as it stands for who the church believed Jesus to be. It says, uh, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, there's one additional thing we need to read here, and that's Thomas's confession in John 20, 28. Thomas's confession in John 20, 28. So we see already in Romans 10, 9 that there is this linkage that that to be part of the Christian community, to be part of the Christian faith, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. Now, let's take a look at what happens. Now, we give Thomas a hard time because he didn't believe that yep. Jesus had risen from the dead whenever he was first told about it. A week later, I think it was 11 days if memory serves, or at least a week later, uh, Jesus appeared to to Thomas, and he was there with the disciples, and he saw Jesus uh, alive, and he says these words in John twenty twenty eight. Mm -hmm. Thomas answered him, "My Lord, and my God." Okay, man, there's mm. so much stuff here. This was a title that the Roman emperor used for himself, and so yeah. Thomas. This is a dangerous statement that Thomas says. Because he's using a title that the emperor wants people to call him for Jesus, saying the emperor is not Lord and God, but Jesus is Lord and God, that he is my Lord and he is my God. Now, why is this title Lord so important? In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the LXX, the Septuagint as it's called, the practice had already began where the, the personal name of God, Yahweh or Yahweh, was never said. But rather, right. they used the term Adonai, which means Lord. Mm -hmm. This practice was continued in the Septuagint. And so instead of using the personal name of God, they would instead, in every instance where, Yah where Yahweh was used, the personal name of God, the, the Tetragrammaton, in every instance, instead of using that, they would use the word, the Greek equivalent to Adonai, which is kurios, meaning Lord. And this is exactly the reason why in our Bibles you see the word Lord in all caps or God in all caps when the personal name of God is used. Because right. early Jewish people in early even Jews reading the Septuagint would not say the personal name of God. They would instead say Kyrios or Adonai. Adonai in Hebrew, Kyrios in Greek. So, the connection made when Jesus is called Kyrios, and especially when you make allusions to him being the Kyrios of Sabaoth, uh, or or Kyrios Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are making that connection back to the personal name of God. Right. 
in fact, I, and, and I hope I'm not out of bounds here, but I believe Habermas has said this, and I, mean, and I believe many others have made mention of this too, that the title Lord, Curios, is perhaps, perhaps the strongest connection that we have to lay claim to the divinity of Jesus, not only in his teachings, but in the early in the earliest teachings of the church. And this is why, as Richard Baucom and many others have said, that the earliest Christology was the highest Christology, because right out yeah. of the gates, you see this term being used of Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, Lord, and not necessarily Jesus using it of himself, except outside of Son of Man, but other people are recognizing this authority in Jesus, and this not only speaks to the humility of Jesus, the humble nature of Jesus, but it also speaks to the overwhelming, awesome power and authority that Jesus possessed and was recognized, picked up on by the earliest Christian community. Yeah. So then, let's step on to the next one. What is meant by the title Messiah? Messiah means anointed one, and and this is this is the classic title used uh, for. Uh, for Jesus, in fact, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his name. Christ right. is a title. It wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ. No, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the name Christos is the Greek translation uh, of, of the Hebrew Aramaic term Mashiach. Mashiach meaning anointed one, Messiah. That's that's from whence we get the term Messiah from from the Hebrew version Mashiach. Uh, Christos is the Greek version of that. Now Jesus rarely. I I don't necessarily even see where Jesus uses this title of himself. Now whenever it's used, when people recognize, when Simon Peter recognized Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the Living God. He obviously uh, picked up on that and, and said that uh, he was. Uh, this was a, an applied response to the high priest. In John chapter 4, if we turn there, this is one case uh, where Jesus lays claim to uh, the, the messianic role. Uh, but if you look at, um, if you look throughout uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, there's what is called this messianic secret where, where Jesus... He identified as the Messiah when people asked him if he was, or, or proclaimed that he was. But he told them not to go, not to go spreading this around. And people have wondered why did Jesus do that? Well, the reason was is that there's such a high expectation, anticipation of the Messiah's appearing, of his advent, that he didn't want, in my opinion, he didn't want to draw unneeded attention to himself before the time of his departure was at hand. So, um, in um, John chapter four. Um, the the woman said to to Jesus, "I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us." Jesus told her, "I, the one speaking to you, and he am he." Uh, there's another time when when the high priest, I think we already read it. You asked him, "Are you tell us directly? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Living God?" And Jesus says something like, "You say that I am," or something like that. Mm-hmm. He's 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 identifying himself, but he's not coming right out and saying it. But now in John four, we have an exception to that. But outside of John four, I don't really see um, any place from what I can tell. And again, if you're listening to this and you see you see a place in the Gospels, you know, leave a comment on the podcast page. But uh, from what I can tell, I don't see any major areas where Jesus uses that title for himself. Mm. Yeah. Powerful, powerful stuff. Well, there it is, folks. There's the there's a part three of our Christ, Christological uh, uh, adventure that we're that we're going through with this uh, in this uh, series here. So. We just, uh, we do want to thank you for uh, spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as, you, as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say, So long, friends. And next week, we talk about the atonement, so you want to join us.
You've been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question.